all about money. So they want to know as much about you. They want to know about everyone you know. So they use dark patterns to trick you into providing way more personal data than any sane human would ever want to provide. And that's how they make more money, right? This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we warned readers about drastic actions taken by WhatsApp against users who refuse to share some of their data with Facebook. Actually, you know what? Let me tell you my experience in learning about this story. I have to go back several years. In 2014, WhatsApp sold itself to Facebook for $19 billion. I reported on that story at the time while working at a different newspaper. I remember the kinds of companies Facebook was purchasing the years prior. The $15 million for a company called Little Eye Labs. $85 million for another company called Parse. Another $15 million for Branch. But $19 billion? $19 billion demanded scrutiny. And to me, it didn't add up. And that's not because WhatsApp wasn't worth $19 billion, whatever that means, but because WhatsApp's founders, even in 2014, were loud, pro-privacy ideologues. And Facebook it wasn't shy about collecting user data on a massive scale. Wouldn't this then lead to a clash? Clearly, I wasn't the only one confused, because when the sale to Facebook was announced, WhatsApp co-founder Jan Kaum published a blog, and in it, he clarified, Respect for your privacy is coded into our DNA, and we built WhatsApp around the goal of knowing as little about you as possible. We don't know your birthday. We don't know your home address. We don't know where you work. We don't know your likes, what you search for on the internet, or collect your GPS location. None of that data has ever been collected and stored by WhatsApp, and we really have no plans to change that. And I, I remember putting this next quote from Kaum into an article that I wrote at the time. If partnering with Facebook meant that we had to change our values we wouldn't have done it. WhatsApp was supposed to be the bulwark against Facebook's data collection. But in January, WhatsApp users learned about a new privacy policy that they were asked to agree to that would see some of their data handed over to Facebook. Now, to clarify, none of that data includes message content. WhatsApp's end-to-end encryption has not been broken in any way, But the inclusion of separate data, which will be interactions with businesses, that was enough to alarm WhatsApp users. Users openly criticized WhatsApp at the time. They flocked to competitors, and they feared that if they did not agree to WhatsApp's new privacy policy, they would see their accounts get deleted. Now, here's the thing. A few months ago, when this all happened, I thought folks were overreacting. I did. I've reported on Silicon Valley companies for close to a decade. I've listened to online privacy doomsday sayers. I've listened to rational online privacy folks as well. And I thought, nope, no way. 
Not happening. And while I am glad to say that I was technically right, I am sorry to say that it is only because I wasn't thinking creatively enough. Moving forward, for users who refuse to share some of their data with Facebook, WhatsApp will render itself useless, eventually removing the ability to receive messages and calls. Let's sit with that for a little bit here. WhatsApp, a messaging app, is removing the ability to receive messages on purpose because users don't want to share some of their information with Facebook. Imagine Netflix without movies. Imagine Spotify without songs. Imagine a calculator app with no calculator functions. Imagine that company saying, we're just going to give you a number pad. You should be grateful we gave you all nine digits. This is what WhatsApp is choosing to do with its own product. It is transforming a trustworthy, secure messaging app into an unworkable contradiction. Private messaging, but only for those who surrender a separate piece of their privacy. It is ludicrous to me. It is startlingly anti-privacy and anti-user, and I still have trouble believing it, to be honest. But it is important to tell this story because it is just one of the many, many ways in which we the public, are pushed into decisions online that maybe we disagree with. Our main story today is about dark patterns, something for which you may have been kept in the dark. I immediately regret that joke. Dark patterns is the term we use to mean tricks used in websites and apps that make you buy or sign up for things that you didn't mean to. That is the official definition, by the way, according to this fellow named Harry Brignall, a user experience researcher who coined the term dark patterns way back in 2010. Now, these tricks that Harry warned us about so long ago, they are not malware, okay? They're not malicious downloads. Instead, these tricks are visual. They are sometimes textual, and they are mainly design decisions on a website itself often used when those websites ask you to choose option A or option B. Option A is a gemstone. It is an oblong slab of brushed aquamarine set above the ivory backplate of the webpage within a thread-thin obsidian border. Option B is a hyperlink. It's written in pale gray, its text is misaligned, and it is squeezed into 11-point font because that's the smallest size the company's lawyers said they could get away with. Option B looks unappealing, and yet it frequently leads to the better outcome for us. But it is the worse outcome for the company that is deploying it. Option B is a dark pattern. Even if you've never heard of these design tricks, you've likely encountered them because they are pretty much everywhere on the web. But as you can tell, they're also particularly hard to find. After all, they are designed to be that way. On today's show, we're going to learn about how these dark patterns get used against the average user. How did they come about? 
can they ever steer you into making a decision that will cost you literal dollars? And what are the growing applications of these dark patterns in online privacy decisions? And what can be done to stop them? To help us shine a light on dark patterns, we're speaking today to Carrie Parker, author of the book Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, a step-by-step guide to computer security and privacy for non-techies. He recently retired from a 28-year career in software engineering to focus on teaching others how to defend their digital devices and protect their personal data. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hey, man. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Carrie, also, I am happy to finally be interviewing you instead of you interviewing me. We have a long history of uh, your show, also also titled Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, I've been on the show a couple of times as you know a representative of Malwarebytes and also previously at EFF. So again, it's just fantastic to, uh, to flip the table a little bit. Absolutely. Glad to be on the other end this time. Let's just get right into it. Today, we're talking about dark patterns and their many consequences. But because they have such broad applications in modern use, I wanted to better understand when did we first start seeing dark patterns and what was their original intent? Yeah, so you mentioned Harry Brignall and he coined the term, you know, as you said, back in 2010. And that's kind of when it was officially a thing. But I mean, if you were, you know, obviously, if you think about it in many ways, you know, we've had dark patterns ever since anyone has tried to sell you anything that you didn't need or didn't want. You know, it's a it's a subtle coercion that uses human psychology against you, basically. I mean, sort of like, you know, like a magician would use misdirection or an optical illusion. It, uh, you know, they understand how the human brain works and they use that to trick you. Now, of course, you know, they're doing it for entertainment purposes. In this case, we're talking about completely different things. And, you know, like, like all these techniques, you know, there's they exist on a spectrum, right, from good to evil. It's just a tool. You can use it for good or ill. You can use it, you know, maybe to help you exercise more, right? There are ways you can, we trick ourselves into trying to eat less or exercise more. But there's a point, you know, where these things go from just being like clever to something explicit, explicitly, you know, deceptive or, you know, at the very least disingenuous. You know, so at some point, that could be too good at something. And if, if you know, if it could be abused, then, you know, it becomes unethical when the average person, you know, can't really fight back. So before the web, before, you know, Harry coined this term, you know, we've had this in real world, like, you know, the classic pricing models of, you know, $1.99 instead of $2, right? Because, you know, people think that's somehow a lot cheaper than $2 when it's not, or <laughs> even that little, right. you know, niggling nine-tenths of a penny that is on the end of every gallon of gasoline you buy in the U.S. I don't, I don't know why that is still legal. It's just so goofy, right? Yeah. But, you know, car sales been pressured, you know, and they they stick you with the extra undercoating stuff or additional warranties or high pressure timeshare seminars. You know, we've seen these things in the real world for a long time. Now, when it comes to online dark patterns, was really what we're talking about here. And and there's a little bit of a terminology history there that I like to just briefly cover. And that is actually there's a concept of what's called design patterns. And we I used it in software engineering for many years. And actually, it's predated by architecture. Someone basically said there's always so many kind of problems in the world, and and so they all kind of fit in these little categories of problems. And there have existed over time ways to address those problems in kind of best practice ways. And then that gave rise to this notion of an anti-pattern, which is something someone thinks is a really good idea, but it's really a bad idea. But people do it over and over again. And then dark patterns. And so that's kind of how we got to that term. And dark meaning not necessarily evil, but like you said, it's more hidden. It's something that's sneaky. It's they're trying to get something past you. So, you know, I think... Maybe historically, that's where that stuff comes from. You, you you talked about how Brignall defined it. But they've been around, honestly, as long as anybody has ever tried to sell us anything. It's a marketing technique, essentially. I 
love learning that there's an architectural background here. <laughs> that's wild. That's insane. I could probably do a whole episode on that. But yep. uh, we are talking, you know, about about online dark patterns. And so I wanted to understand what do these look like in use? You know, can can we just talk about their visual presentation? Is it only visual? Are there textual ways to get people to do things that maybe they weren't going to do to begin with? So yeah, it's just what do dark patterns look like in use online? Yeah, a great question. And the ones that you already alluded to in the intro are, are the ones I think people are most are most for probably familiar with. And the ones that, you know, if we talk about examples, they're going to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I know exactly. In fact, even just reading some category descriptions, I'm sure you're going to immediately think of some of these ideas that, you, that you've run across yourself. But so Brignall, when he first defined this, kind of broke them down into 10 categories. And what I actually kind of like a little better is there's a, there's a group from Purdue University that put out a paper in 2018 where they kind of reorganized things into what they called strategies. And there's like five different strategies that they that they they assign to the dark patterns and they put them in these bins these buckets and so interface interference is is the one that that we think about most that is where like you said you've got a, a big button big shiny button that looks like that's what i want to hit that's what i want to go for you're just like your muscle memory just like brings you to want to click on that big old button and it's very often not what you want, or at least it's, it's not for your benefit, really, it's for theirs. And to do the thing you really want to do, or the thing that benefits you, is somewhere else. It's a little, it's that little link off to the side. It's in the very low contrast text. But it's also things like, you know, confusing language. Uh, so it's not really a graphical user interface. It could be a textual thing, too, where they're using a lot of double or triple negatives, where it makes it really confusing as to exactly what it is you're trying to do. Or pre-selecting the option that is best for them and not for you. That's very common. You know, when you go to sign up for something, it pre-selects a lot of things like sign me up for newsletters or advertisements or whatever, or share my information. And are all pre-selected. That's Those are all kind of graphical user user interface things, things that we call UX or user experience. Yeah. But there's more, like you, like you alluded to, there's more other things. The other categories include things like nagging, which as soon as I say it, you, you know what I mean. It's, it's, they keep asking you until, you know, please rate my product, uh, you know, and, it, yeah. and you have to click the thing, oh, not now, you know, do it later. And there's never a no. There's a either <laughs> yes, I'll do it right now, or <laughs> remind me later, right? You know, that's another kind of a classic one. That's another category that the, the Dr. Grace team has defined. Um, obstruction. Either, you know, the obvious one maybe is something comes up and is in your way and you've got to get it out of your way to get what you want and so it oftentimes it'll force you to do something you don't want to do in order to get it out of the way or you just get tired of seeing it and so you finally just say whatever just i'll do it but it oh, i love the term that brignall originally used for this and it dates back to the maybe 1970s or maybe 1980s advertisement campaign for the roach motel and that is you know it's really it's really easy to get in it's really hard to get out and so we'll talk about some examples in a minute, but I, I, that's, that's another one. And then there's two other ones. One's called sneaking. That is where it's a little less blatant um, than some of these other ones, but it's, you know, it's the thing where you go to buy something maybe, and, you know, you don't find out till the very end of the process that, oh, there's shipping involved, or there's other, some weird thing they're going to tack on that, you know, that you didn't realize till you get the very end. It's like, oh man, I just went through that whole process. Am I really going to bail now? Hmm. You know, kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And then the last one is forced action. And that's, that's really pretty blatant. I mean, that's that's where they, you know, they force you to do something to get what you want. You've got to go through something that you don't want. So they, they've, they've defined these these categories. And so it's not it's not just the kind of user interface things that you were talking about, that those are maybe the most common and the most ones that we're, we're used to. But they came up with several other categories uh, of ways that uh, online where they try to, you know, act basically get you to act against your own best interest. 
Yeah, I am so glad that uh, that research came out of that because I was looking at the uh, the multiple types, right, that Harry Brignall put together. And like mm-hmm. you said, the Roach Motel, um, there was one called the Bait and Switch. Uh, you yep. want something, but you get something else. There's a pretty popular one I'm sure people have encountered that we spoke about that, you know, canceling your subscription to something. Oh, that yeah. It's just so much harder than it should be. Or you have to, you know, or you're you're presented with so many screens of like, are you sure? Think <laughs> right. about what you'll be missing out on. And it's like yep. I've already thought about it. That's why I'm that's why I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but these these categories that you mentioned, you're right, interface interference, nagging, obstruction, sneaking, forced action. I think those are much more relevant in modern understandings. Mm, yeah. And with that, I, I wanted to kind of move and understand, do we have any examples? And I'm sure that question is like, yeah, we have a ton, so let's we have to narrow it down. But are there some real-life examples of dark patterns that you could just read out loud or or describe visually for our listeners? Absolutely. And if you're if you're really curious, by the way, one of the things that Brignalls does, he actually has a whole website that's still up since then called darkpatterns.org. And they have what they call a hall of shame. You can go into the hall of shame and you can see just dozens and probably hundreds of examples uh, <laughs> that they've collected. And the Purdue team actually has their own as well. It's a little less hard to remember, but darkpatterns.uxp2.com. They also have several examples there. But yeah, let, let's, let's walk through a few. So the classic one actually is a lot of is a lot of times when you could control the user interface, you pop up a window and there's you're used to there being a little X at the upper top of the corner, and that's how you close the window. That's how you make it go away. But there's an example that you pop up and you click the X and it doesn't go away. It does say it takes you to something else or takes you to another website. That's that's an obvious use of your human psychology. You've grown to understand that that is the way user experience is supposed to be. There's a little X, and when I click it, it goes away. But these guys have figured out, well, everyone's gotta click that, because so why don't we make that do it what we want it to do and not what they want it to do. I'm looking at one, uh, again, I have to describe it because it's this is an audio podcast, but yeah. unsubscribing from anything today, because everybody, everybody loves to get your subscription and they hate to have you unsubscribe. That's the Roach Motel. It's really easy to get in. It's really hard to get out, but they make it confusing. Like, so when you go to, like, there's this Yahoo one I'm looking at where you click some unsubscribe thing and the big, big blue button with a nice pretty lettering is the question is, are you sure you want to unsubscribe from daily Yahoo? And, and the big button says, no, cancel. Okay, wait, am I, am I canceling my subscription or am I canceling my canceling of the subscription, right? Wow, that, yeah. Kind of a double negative. And then, of course, underneath that, there's these very light text links that say, yes, unsubscribe from this newsletter. And then below that is, yes, unsubscribe from all marketing messages. So it's not, you can't, <laughs> you got to make that special effort to get to, to everything, right? Another classic one I love is this thing called confirm shaming. And you've seen this before, too, where, yes, Give me you know, the really good thing and the other thing, the little link says, you know, no, I already know everything, you know, or no, I don't want free unlimited one day delivery. That was from Amazon. <laughs> oh, God. You know, like who you, you, you almost painful to click on that. Like, well, I, I yeah. do kind of want one day delivery, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but, you know, to get that, you got to spend money. One of the really nasty ones I saw in one of the examples was some, it's a game I've never heard of. It's called Two Dots. And I guess, you know, when you're playing the game, you you fail, you play again, you fail, you play again. So when it, when you fail, pops up the window, play again, start a you know, start new game. There's a button like right there in the middle of the screen. And then eventually what they do is they bring up the same dialogue, almost the same dialogue, but that button to start the new game is shifted down one. And the one right where your finger's used to going is buy credits. You know, I don't know, all games have like ways to buy into more things to make it easier or whatever, right? So yeah, yeah. they moved it right where your finger's used to hitting because they're just <laughs> They know muscle memory. People are going to just, I want next game, next game, next game. Wow. Oh, crap. I didn't mean to, you know, I didn't mean to hit yeah. that. 
Damn. So, yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> Those are just a few. I've got several others. Yeah, that sounds uh, horribly annoying, right? Like, that yep. sounds... Like, you wonder if they've done the math, and they've been oh, like... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, they did the math. <laughs> right? And this is like, totally on purpose. <laughs> yep. And it's like, yes, we are going to piss off some of our yeah. users. Undoubtedly, yep. we're going to do that. But... We're going to make money doing it. <laughs> we're going to make money doing it. Yeah. And so it's worth it in the end. So we've talked about quite a few of these that have some monetary value, right? Yeah. Um, you lose money, you spend money that you weren't going to, that you weren't planning on spending. You're confirm shamed into spending money in a way down the line, probably in an annual subscription model. But somewhere along the way, from what I've read, dark patterns also began to be used for online privacy decisions. It seems like in the past few years, right, more and more and more frequently, users are being asked to agree to privacy terms and conditions, privacy policies. They're getting yeah. emails. Hey, we're updating our privacy policy. <laughs> you got to agree to it. <laughs> um, right, right. And we've seen websites implement dark patterns for those decisions. So can you tell me about how those dark patterns operate? You know, what, what are they tricking users into doing in regards to their privacy? Yeah. If it isn't, you know, like just spending money. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, to be clear, let's, I mean, let's be honest. At the end of the day, it all comes back to money in some way, shape or form, right? If, you know, if the product is free, then you're probably the product, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Google, you know, Facebook and Google are not free. We, we pay for them with our privacy. You know, Facebook is not a social media company. Google is not a search company or a mobile operating system company or a <laughs> web browser company. I mean, these are both advertising companies. Mm -hmm. I think I read 90% of Google's revenue comes from advertising. And so, as advertising companies, they have managed to convince the world that targeted ads are much more valuable than contextual ads. In other words, like DuckDuckGo. I love DuckDuckGo. They're a privacy-centered search engine. And when I go to DuckDuckGo and I search on tennis shoes, they can then show me an ad for Adidas or Nike off to the side. That makes sense. That was contextual. I search for shoes. I'm obviously interested in shoes. They're not tracking me. They're not tracing me. They don't remember that I asked for shoes. But because there's some computer that said, well, they asked about shoes. Let's show them an ad for shoes. Whereas, you know, Google and Facebook have decided, no, 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 uh, to, to really to really do this right, we need to know as much as humanly possible about everyone. And by the way, I don't just mean people that are signed up with Google and Facebook. They track everybody. Facebook has what they call shadow profiles, and they, they so they're keeping tabs on people that are not signed up for Facebook. Same with Google. So, again, it's all about money. So they want to know as much about you. They want to know about everyone you know. So they use dark patterns to trick you into providing way more personal data than any sane human would ever want to provide. And that's how they make more money, right? So, and one more thing. Now, they, they claim that they don't sell your data. And that is technically correct because right. they don't sell yeah. your data. They sell access to your data, indirect mm -hmm. access, right? They hoard your data for themselves. And they, and they promise to be good stewards of that data. But at the end of the day, like after Cambridge Analytica, we see that they can't always protect it. Data wants to be free, right? And and if you don't keep tabs on it, you know, rogue employees or hackers or someone's going to get their hands on it. Okay. But so you asked about, you know, what does that look like? So the way it really comes down then, since for a lot of these things, is the terms of service or the end user license agreements that we all click agree to because we don't want to read them because they're frankly too long to read. And it, <laughs> I did a little research on this and, and there was some really fascinating stuff. There was a paper from Carnegie Mellon in 2012 that estimated that it would, and this is 2012, so it's, it must have gotten worse, right? It's been 10 years ago or nine years ago. And they said that it would take the average person 76 days 
to read all the privacy policies that they come across and, and oh as part gosh. of their regular lives. Not everything out there, just the ones that they deal with on a regular basis. <laughs> you know, and that doesn't even touch all the, you know, all the terms of service and the end user license agreements that we all click on without reading. You know, yeah. uh, there was another really cool infographic from this, I never heard of them, called Visual Capitalist. And I don't know, maybe infographics is their thing. But they had this really cool infographic that kind of showed, like, visually, like, the length of the privacy policies and things that you're reading that you all blindly agree to and pops up and you just want to get it out of the way. And they listed, like, how many words were in the privacy policies of these companies and how many minutes, assuming you could read 240 words a minute, how long it would take you to read these. And it ranged anywhere from 20 minutes up to like over an hour. Like Microsoft's in particular, they were the they were the grand prize winner at 15,000 words in 63 minutes. Oh, man. I know. <laughs> Spotify was next with like 8,000 words in 33 minutes or 35 minutes. And, and the funny thing was they, they had these comparisons below that, like the Bill of Rights you know, the, the, the first 10 minutes of the U.S. Constitution <laughs> is 7,500 words. It's 31 minutes. It would, you know, so these things are on order of, you know, Macbeth. Like, Macbeth is right up there with Microsoft, you know, as far as how long it would take you to read. You know, so it's, it's really My just, gosh. it's gotten that bad. I know. Yeah. That sounds so true. Like, that resonates so much, right? Just that, like, there are these terms and conditions that we, we have to accept. Because if we didn't, it would take longer to read them than to read a critically acclaimed, you know, classic play. Right. Um, so something that's been passed down. Longer to read than to read and even interpret the cornerstone of our country's <laughs> democracy. Like, it's like, right. oh, okay, I don't judge things based off of length and word count. I'm not trying to make that equivocation, but it is kind of insane uh, at the same time. So you and I, right, uh, we've... we've been talking about this we to us it it sounds like these are these dark patterns are things that are clearly bad we 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 don't want to fall for their tricks but a big question and one that i've struggled with sometimes is sometimes there are folks who it's hard to explain it and and again something i've struggled with is why should we care about this you know how do you explain that to someone who's never heard of these things to someone who was born in a world in which giving up their information to Facebook was the standard. They don't know right. another world, you know, that that's it. And so right. why should we care about this? You know, what what is the harm when we're led into these decisions? Yeah, and that is a, you know, that is a $64,000 question. And I'm dating myself because that was like a 1970s <laughs> game show. Yeah. I think there's at least a couple ways to think of this. Obviously, the money thing. I mean, if someone's tricking you out of money, that's pretty straightforward. But I think where people get lost and where people start thinking, yeah, you know, I, I don't care, is, is when we start talking about privacy and personal data. A lot of people are like, you know, I'm boring. I, there's nothing I do that I care about. My emails are boring. My, my web searches are even boring, which I doubt, by the way. But <laughs> right, right. You know, searching on medical conditions, or you know, yeah. you start you tell your you tell your browser things you don't tell even your spouse sometimes, right? But, you know, so I think there's at least a, a couple levels, uh, you know, at the most basic level, you know, and it's one I think that Dr. Gray calls out when he, you know, that we're tricking someone into doing things that benefit someone else over yourself. And I think when you phrase it that way, when you think about it in those terms, you can certainly you can understand that okay, that's shady and that's 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 not good. That's something that I really don't want to support or be a part of or be a victim of. 
you know, so, but that's still kind of vague. And um, so then I think we really need to think about when you're, when you're talking about privacy and, you know, I'll get a little philosophical here, but it, <laughs> privacy, it's a basic human right. I mean, yep. there are dire consequences for when you, for when you lose that, not just, and not just as an individual, but as a society or a democracy, because I just read this book, Privacy is Power by Carissa Valise, which if you haven't read it is fantastic. It does a really great job of talking about why privacy is so important and why it's a collective concern. And it's not just a personal concern, because I think a lot of people, it comes down to, well, it's not a big deal for me, so I'm going to give away my privacy. But you've got to realize that, first of all, it's not just your data. When you give away your data, like oftentimes when you sign up for Google and Facebook and Yahoo or LinkedIn, a lot of a lot of times the first thing they will ask you to do is, hey, you know, give us give us access to your email account and we'll see what other friends might be on Facebook and we'll communicate, you know, we'll, we'll hook you up automatically. Well, of course, what that's doing is giving them access to all of your emails. And if you give them your Google, that's, I mean, think how many things you use with a Google ID. I mean, you know, and so they just, and then they just mine all that data and now they know who you're connected with. They've got your social graph. And so it's not just your data. You know, there's information in your address book. There's information in your Facebook page that is other people. You tag other people in your photos. It's not just photos of you. That involves their privacy too. So at that basic level, it's not an individual. But then, you know, as a society, as a democracy, it's important. We we act differently when we're being surveilled. And, and let's face it, web tracking, we're calling it web tracking. That's a euphemism. It's nothing less than mass surveillance. And it's just because it's done by companies and not by the government directly doesn't make it any less mass surveillance. You know, mm-hmm. they collect this these massive creepy dossiers on all of us. You know, even people we don't that aren't don't use the products directly. So first of all, that data can then be directly abused by a rogue employee or stolen by hackers or can be used to manipulate us. There's a famous or maybe infamous experiment that Facebook ran in 2012, secretly, they got caught, That it kind of came out later, that was called the social contagion experiment. They actually, for a week, and and they've got billions of users, right? They took 700,000 of their users and tried to figure out, could they influence their mood, both either happy or sad? And they showed them different things. This is what we call an A-B test. And this is part of what makes this stuff so insidious is these companies with all uh, on the web could very easily say, okay, I'm going to show half the people a blue button and half the people a red button. And if I find that people click on the red button more than the blue button, well, then we're just going to use red button for everybody. <laughs> and so, but they use the same sort of technique, this what we call A-B testing to say, can I make this group of people happier? And can I make this group of people sadder? Wow. And <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and they didn't ask for permission. They just, they just did it. And, yep. you know, okay, so... And I bet they were successful, right? Like, I bet, <laughs> yes. I bet they were like, yes, we can. We proved it. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, you know it. Congratulations. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and, that, and I know this gets political as soon as you say this, but I mean, if they have influenced elections. There's just no two ways about it. I mean, you know, Brexit, Cambridge Analytica, and other elections around the world, if you watch, you know, what is it, The Great Hack, mm-hmm. you'll get to see how these social media companies were contracted or, or abused in some cases. Cambridge Analytica, it's kind of weird. They just... Facebook was lax and some other company exploited it, mm-hmm. you know, but that, that had real, real world consequences. And then if that, all that wasn't enough, if all that wasn't enough, if you still don't believe that privacy is a problem, at least you know, in, in dem- democratic nations like the United States that have some notion of a fourth amendment where you've got to go to a judge to get access to a certain amount of data because it's private. You're not, you're not supposed to be able to just go get it without asking. But the fact that all these companies are now collecting that data means that a lot of governments can just do an end around. They can just go get that data from the companies, either with explicit permission or perhaps with like a super secret, you know, national security letter, or they can just hack it. So the only data that you can protect is data that doesn't exist. I wanted to revisit two things you said here, right? One, that privacy is a collective good because 
You're absolutely right. I think there are a lot of folks who, when they hear about people advocating for their own privacy, sometimes it comes off as a selfish thing. Well, it's my mm-hmm. privacy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to clamp down. And interestingly, what a moment of serendipity. I was listening to an episode of Radio Lab yesterday where a reporter was presented with a difficult choice where they may have had to give up their phone kind of on the spot to find out if they had been hacked. And mm. it was it was a pretty high-stakes situation, and they were like, ah, there's a good chance someone is listening to our conversations within this reporting, within the, the story. But at the same time, this is my phone, you know? And right. I, have to have a, I have to figure out if I'm going to give it up today. And one of the reporters reporting on the story said that they began to realize that privacy wasn't just her phone. It was mm. everyone's information on that phone. Right. And it was yeah. right. And it was this, it wasn't just like, oh, this reporter's, you know, being unreasonable. Like, no, they're they're protecting their family. There's pictures of their family. There's pictures of their friends. There's conversations with friends, with so many folks. These are intimate moments. And so absolutely protecting your privacy protects other people's privacy uh, because we are protecting spheres. We're protecting our phone, you know, and, and the phone has so much more in it. And then secondly, I just wanted to remark on that on that thing you said about how the government can ask companies, hey, do you have this data? Instead right. of asking us directly. And that does happen. That is a thing mm. that absolutely happens. Like it's not, yep. it's not science fiction. It's not someone over-exaggerating about Big Brother. It's those things just happen today. They honestly do. And yep, absolutely. with all of that, right, we know we're trying to tell people about the importance of staying private. But often when I talk to folks about how to stay private online, so much of the work falls on them, the user. And that's tough, right? And I think the same thing is happening here, unfortunately. Again, right? We're, we're once again asking users to do more stuff. And in this case, right, it's like, are we asking users when it comes to dark patterns to find things that are explicitly designed to stay hidden, right? That's, that's, a, that's a ton of work. It's like, hey, be more mindful of everything, <laughs> every web page encounter. So, what can we instead think about for how the responsibility might fall on companies? What can privacy-protective companies, which there are some out there, what can they do to protect users from this? Because I doubt that the companies that use these tactics are going to be racing to stop using them anytime soon. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right in in that, you know, we have the phrase caveat emptor, right? It would buyer beware. And so we've kind of all been taught that the onus is on us, you know, that there will be snake oil salesmen out there. It's up to you to root them out and not fall victim. Mm-hmm. But these dark patterns, this is a scientific thing. These, I mean, this, these are people who are very well learned in the notion of what human psychology is and how we act and react to things, what we draw attention to, what we shy away from, you know, how emotions play into, you know, how much time we spend online and how much money we spend and what we spend that money on. And so it's really, it's really not fair. And, but, you know, so asking people to do it, and that's absolutely what they do. That They absolutely will say, you know what, you've, it's kind of like Dorothy in the slippers. You've, you've always had the power to not do this. Just click your heels three times, right? It's, <laughs> you've always had the power to not be tracked. You just have to find the right setting and turn it off. And you yeah. can't do that? Oh, well, you know, I can't help you. But it, we've given you the tools. It's really on you. And it, <laughs> that is just, 
That is not the way to do it. It's it's opt out is a myth. It's just it's first of all, it's logistically impossible. <laughs> if you wanted to try to find all the different ways that you have signed away your privacy, it's probably nigh impossible, let alone just numerically impossible. There's just too many places for you to do that. And of course, they don't want to provide you a one-stop shop for you to say, you know, like, do not track. When we had that back in the web, and it was a great idea, but everyone immediately ignored it because we don't want you to have a global way to say no. You've got to individually say no. So I think it's a certainly a false choice. You know, it, it, it's it's blaming the victim. It's and you know, it, it, trying to expect people to do it is is it's not going to work. Even though that's where they always come back to because that's their yeah. way of that's their out. That's their, their way of mm-hmm. saying we gave you the option. You just didn't choose it. You know, we gave you the terms of service. You just didn't read it. You just clicked agreed without you know without without reading it. But okay. But as as far as you know, companies. I you know I think. I think we can expect maybe some companies to be on our side in this situation. Not many. Uh, obviously, the the way things are set up, just about everybody is making money off this. It, you know, the, the web is online is really a, a layered beast. You know, there are there are different levels. There are people that create websites and mobile apps, but you know, those sites and apps need to run on some platform. You know, some web hosting service or an operating system. Mm-hmm. And you know, then uh, kind of maybe a parallel to that is there are companies that accept payments. I mean, it's all about money at some point. So you know, Mastercard and Visa they they have weight to throw around. They could you know they don't allow people to buy certain things with Mastercard and Visa, and so that limits you know what how people can be you know abused in some ways. And it's surely possible that some of those supporting companies could require, you know, the other companies to act better towards their end users, you know, and like, you know, and there are some companies like Apple, for example, they're, they're a perfect counterexample because they try, you know, they try really hard to protect their users' privacy. And, you know, because they do control their, the entire ecosystem, you know, one of the upsides to that, and there are downsides, but one of the upsides to that is they control the hardware as well as the software. They are in a very unique position to enforce policies that protect their users from dark patterns and getting people to give away more information than they should or spend more money than they should. I remember there was an app on the App Store that cost $999. It was the maximum allowed value that Apple allowed people to charge for an app. And it was yeah. it was nothing but bling, literally. Like there was a picture of a diamond or something. And the only, so the only reason to have it was that you could, it's a stat, it was to pure say status. say you had it, right? Yeah. It was pure, yeah, it was just pure status. And Apple, I shot that down at some point. They said, no, 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 no <laughs> you, you can't do that. But for all the other companies, it's, it's it's tough. I mean, it's I mean, it's it's a really incestuous relationship where all the layers are making money at one form or another, either off the product being sold, or by more time being spent online, or by more data being collected, and they all have agreements to share that data in some ways. You know, it's really it's really kind of hard to find companies that are in a position like Apple where they don't they're not an advertising company. They don't need your data and. You know, and I don't know whether it's through altruism or whether it was some marketing guy in Apple saying, you know, hey, you know what? We we don't need their data. Why don't we use that as a selling point? I don't really care <laughs> how <laughs> right. they got yeah. there. I'm just <laughs> glad that they got there. The other thing maybe maybe we could convince some of these other companies to do is, is for is to get transparent, you know, to, to offer more transparency. This is what's going on. This is make it more obvious that they're tracking you, make it more easy for you to find ways to say no. But, you know, right now we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I mean, most of these companies are not really exposing what's going on. And that's why it's called dark patterns. These things are not visible. They're not easy to see. It's really hard on purpose for humans to pick them out. And so it's really tough. I'm glad that you brought up Apple and transparency, because right now, I think there's one of the biggest changes, one of the biggest experiments, uh, I think is a fine way to call it, happening with app transparency. And that's uh, that Apple recently released with its most recent iOS, right? So its operating system on its iPhone, maybe its iPad, I actually don't know, called a 
app tracking transparency. What a clear name. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, right. And what it is, is it's, it's manifest on people's phones as prompts, right? Hey, you're using this app. Do you want to ask that app to not track you? Because mm -hmm. Apple is like, we know what goes into the, as, these apps because these apps apply to be sold or to be just uh, available on our app store. So we at least know what's on them in the degree in that we know how these apps try to track you. We know what permissions they ask for. Mm -hmm. We know what they're collecting using your Apple, I don't think it's their Apple ID, but it's the Apple advertising ID. And they're just being upfront. They're like, Do, you know, are you... Are you okay with Facebook using your data this way? Are you okay with Spotify using your data this way? What about Twitter? Can you just tell us more about how that works? Mm. You know, uh, and also, how are people responding to it? Because I, I really do think this is the first time we're seeing something like it. Yeah, this, this is a real case study. And this actually brings together almost everything that we've talked about today. So <laughs> you know, dark patterns and incentives to go either this way or that. And so, yeah, this, this is really a perfect one. And so without getting super technical, yeah, Apple like a lot of platforms created because advertising is such a huge deal. They created this thing called IDFA or ID for advertisers. And it was a correlating ID that let apps, you know, and advertisers track users across a particular app. So let's, let's be clear. We're not talking about just first party tracking. If you're running the Facebook app, anything you do in that Facebook app, you should assume that Facebook knows and has recorded and will use for their benefit down the line. This is about cross-app tracking or tracking from your app to the web or somewhere else. This is taking that correlating ID and somehow talking to makers of other apps that may be running on your phone. Hey, I'm using this ID. Is this guy using the ID for you? Oh, yeah, mm, that's your data. It's this cross-pollination that, that they're really trying to block. Yeah. And that was the wrong word. They're not actually blocking it. And that's mm -hmm. that is also key. They're not preventing this from happening. All mm -hmm. Apple is doing with this new app tracking transparency is they are forcing app developers on iOS and iPadOS to, and even Apple TV to pop up a dialogue, a neutral dialogue with neutral wording without dark patterns to say, hey, this app wants to track. In fact, uh, I can read it to you. It says, for Facebook, for example, it says Facebook would like permission to track you across apps and websites owned by other companies. And then you have two choices. You can either say, ask the app not to track or allow tracking. Neither one is pre-selected. Neither one is bigger or different or prettier than the other. It's a solid, distinct binary choice with clear wording. It's informed consent. And when Apple told the developers last fall, actually last summer, I think is when they first announced it. And then they tried to put it into place in fall and got so much push pushback from companies like Facebook that they delayed it. They said, we're, we're going to be doing this. And Facebook and others just flipped out. I mean, Facebook put out full newspaper ads saying this is going to harm small businesses and uh, it's going to ruin the internet as we know it. And, you know, all these horrible things. And it just <laughs> totally gave lie to the fact that they had ever really ever gotten informed consent because they knew that if soon as you popped up a dialogue like this without the dark patterns, the people would say, well, well, too many people. I don't know. They didn't know at the time. They estimated, I, I forget, they actually had estimates that it, like 40% or 60%, I forget, would uh, select this. And they were super worried about that, that people would, would, would choose not to track once they were given a clear choice. Um, and so I'm going to have to describe this to you, but it, it's worth going through that Facebook has the picture of, of what they actually offer when this now happens. And so there's 
two things that I'm going to have to describe for you. The first one is this is the picture that Facebook shows you. This is the the actual in the app what Facebook is showing. And then mm-hmm. next comes the dialogue from Apple, which they've tried to prep you for so that when you get the uh-huh. Apple dialogue, you're going to select the thing they want you to select. And so the Facebook version of this is, this, first of all, this little picture at the top. Very nice, very idyllic setting. It's a very happy person holding their phone with their finger about to tap a button. And then there's a there's flowers. There's a piping hot cup of coffee. There's a nice book. Someone is very happy. They're enjoying their life. And, and life is about to get better because they're going to say, allow. You know, and so, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's really being very, you know, sarcastic and facetious. But, I mean, I'm sure that that is really what happened behind the scenes. And so, and then they offer, and there's, there's three little, you know, they explain why they're going to do this. And, and they give you these three little bullets. And one is, you know, we're going to show you ads that are more personalized. That is the total euphemism for this, right? Personalization Mm -hmm. is just a euphemism for tracking. And then they say, you know, we want to support businesses that rely on ads to reach their customers because so many, you know, these businesses need advertising dollars to stay afloat. So we're helping them. This is an altruistic thing. And then finally, and this actually got added later, uh, my initial screenshot of this didn't have it, but uh, they eventually added this, a third bullet that says, help keep Instagram or Facebook, it was on both of them, free of charge. And what the obvious implication is, well, you know, if you don't let us track you, we got to make some money somewhere. So, you know what? We're going to have to start charging. Who knows how much? Maybe it's way too much. You know, are you willing to pay that? Maybe you should just allow us to track you. Even if it's just a dollar, right? We're going to do the thing that we said we would never do. Right. They did. Yeah. And they, you're right. They did. They came out years ago and said, we will always be free. And they've started to walk that back in light of things like this. So Apple, all they've done, I mean, they've, they've not stopped tracking. They've not blocked it. They've not prevented it. All they've done is give the user informed consent. They've popped up a neutral, not a dark pattern dialogue that gives you a real choice. And you asked how effective it was. Now, so I get it. Facebook back in the day, back last fall or whatever, I think in their internal documents that leaked, uh, maybe on purpose, that they felt that, you know, maybe 50 or 60% of people didn't want to be tracked. I just saw several articles from Ars Technica and Wired and other places that I respect saying that so far from some companies' data, 96% of the users have said no. That's Whoa. phenomenal. Whoa. And it's got to be making companies like Facebook just freak out. Wow. That's a far higher adoption rate than I considered. Than I, I know, me too. And, and, you know, it remains to be seen. It's early data. You know, it was, maybe right. it was just one study, but that is still very heartening. Right. Those are the kinds of numbers where you're like, oh, it's working. <laughs> it's, yeah, right. The, Transparency. It's yeah. just an informed consent. Yeah, it's very simple. So with Apple, right, that's the first case study of its kind. Apple is an enormous company. It is, I believe... For a while, for I think for a good decade or so, it was like the only company in history that had posted quarterly profits for as long as it had. It's growing, which is to say it's growing. It's enormous. It can afford to throw its weight around. It can say, Facebook, you've got to comply with us. It can say this to the biggest tech companies, biggest social media companies, just in, in the country, in the world. Obviously, not everyone is Apple. So... Wrapping it up here, what is the actual solution to this in your mind? Yeah, wow. So it's probably not going to be too surprising at this point for me to say this, but I don't think there's a market solution to this problem. The (laughs) the financial incentives for most companies, again, all throughout the layers of the internet, the the platforms and the payment systems and the the main companies, it's all tied to selling more products and services. And dark patterns are specifically scientifically designed to make more money or in this, you know, or make more money indirectly by giving up more data. And so 
I think that, you know, I think that means we need a referee. Any game worth playing needs rules. Any game of any consequence needs some impartial body to enforce those rules. And so that means having regulations with teeth, real teeth, and having regulators with both the budget and the power to enforce them. Um, you know, we, we don't opt in for, for the safety of our food or for medicine or cars <laughs> or planes. I mean, we, 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 we take, you know what I mean? We, we, we do those things because we know that yeah. because there were, there were no financial incentives. I mean, car companies hated when they were mandated to put in seatbelts. They said, everyone's going to hate them. No one's going to wear them. And airbags and ABS and, you know, I'm picking on the car industry, but using, just, yeah, using unleaded gasoline, you know, yeah. that was a yep. huge fight. Huge yep. fight. Oil companies were like, no, we're going to, we're going to use leaded gasoline, even though it killed people. Right. That's it. <laughs> yep. Well, the tobacco industry and, you know, the list goes on and on. And the financial incentives just weren't there. The market wasn't going to fix those problems. And so in situations like that, I know regulations are a four-letter word to a lot of people, but there are reasons we have them. It, we don't have to regulate everything. And the, yes, it does have effects on businesses. But at the end of the day, there are situations where it's the only solution because, you know, there's no invisible, there's no financial incentive framework you could erect really without regulations that would make this happen. And so we need regulation. So that means we need the governments to step in. And, you know, the EU has stepped in a few years ago with GDPR. That's why in May of two years ago or whatever, we all got those emails saying we've updated our privacy policy. <laughs> and that's why every website you go now has that stupid little pop-up at the bottom saying, accept all cookies. That all came from GDPR. So it's obviously not perfect. But I mean, that is a government sticking up for its people and saying, you know, look, you can't do that anymore. We, we, we've got to set some rules and we've got to have real penalties. And and we haven't quite, quite got there yet in the U.S., but it's going to happen. And as much as, you know, a lot of people I know hate big government and whatever, like I said, you know, there, there's a reason we can eat food and take medicine and drive cars and get in airplanes without worrying. It's not because we have personally, out of our own individual, gotten out there and inspected the plane or tasted the food, you know, and made sure it's not poisonous. It's because we... We said, you know what, there needs to be laws around this, there needs to be rules around this, and we need a, a group to enforce those so that we don't have to. And so I, I think ultimately, unfortunately, I'm not always for regulation, but I, I, in this case, I, I just don't see another way to fix it. And I think you bring up such a good point there, right, that we, we don't opt in to food, to healthy yeah. food, right? And because it would be untenable, even with the frequency with which we eat, right, it is multiplied at least by like a hundred with the number of websites we visit, you know, like in a day, right. like right. imagine if you had to opt in to every potato chip, you know, like <laughs> absolutely not. You can't, it, it's again, it's untenable. Carrie, we have covered so much. I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show. Well, it was a lot of fun and thanks so much for having me. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we tell you a story about VPN logging a practice that many VPN providers swear against, but a practice that also helped send one cyber stalker to prison. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>